The trick to mind wandering is that essentially you bore people. So hopefully there's not a lot of mind wandering happening right now. My days are consumed by apps and devices that seem to be mushrooming everywhere. If you're like me, you may be wondering if these tools, with their promise of streamlining our lives, are causing more stress and offering less relief. There's a reason for that. Today's world runs on an attention economy. What that means is businesses are vying for our limited attention because it translates to money. To understand the demands on our attention, I turn to Amishi Jha, at the University of Miami for some advice. Amishi is a neuroscientist, author and founder of the Jaw Lab. She has been featured in the New York Times and has appeared on CNN and NPR. And her TED Talk on this topic has more than 5 million hits. Amishi, welcome to Life Meet Tech. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So I've seen your TED Talk, which has almost 5 million views now. A growing body of literature suggests that we mind wander, we take our mind away from the task at hand, about 50% of our waking moments. These might be small little trips that we take away, private thoughts that we have. And when this mind wandering happens, it can be problematic. Now, I don't think there'll be any dire consequences with you all sitting here today, but imagine a military leader missing four minutes of a military briefing, or a judge missing four minutes of testimony, or a surgeon or firefighter missing any time, the consequences in those cases could be dire. You talk about attention being hijacked. Who are these hijackers? So that's in some ways a very complex question because part of the reason it gets hijacked is our own mind. We have sort of multiple competing things going on. On the one hand, we might have a goal or a task we want to do, and we'd like our attention to be placed right where we need it. But there are other forces that can actually derail that. And this is where this concept of mind wandering or having a mind that gets pulled away comes in. So one answer is just our own mind is actually in competition with our goals sometimes. And we can definitely talk about that. But another very prominent source of hijacking is, of course, the external environment. Whether it's somebody calling you from another room or probably more likely your phone dinging and beeping and luring you away from the task at hand. So it's a rich environment these days to get attention hijacked. Right. There is a Netflix documentary, you may have seen it, called The Social Dilemma. And they make this very strong argument that social media companies work very hard in trying to rob our attention, which is the key currency these days. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely think we're in a moment of attentional crisis, if you will. And it is the most lucrative commodity that a lot of these social media companies have. I mean, this is where we talk about the attention economy or attention futures. I think those terms were even used in that movie and other books have been written on these topics. So I think that's absolutely the case. But I would say the crisis of attention and the solution to that crisis, in addition to better regulation and better accountability, can be solved by us working to better serve ourselves. So the divided attention aspect of it, when in pursuit of one goal, and then there's pursuit of multiple goals, it's sometimes called multitasking. Do you think people can actually multitask or is it just a myth? When more than one thing requires your attention, it's attentionally demanding, you cannot do two things at once. Our attention does not function that way. So multitasking in that sense is a myth. Now, if one of the tasks is very low level, meaning it's walking and you happen to be great at walking, it will not actually interfere 
with something that's attentionally demanding. But two things that require our attention, nope, you can't do them at the same time. You have to sort of trade back and forth. And that's why from the research side, we refer to this as task switching, not multitasking. And it ends up the process of task switching is very attentionally costly so that we spend out this cognitive fuel when we go from engaging in one thing, disengaging from it and engaging in the next thing. Not an efficient way to use our mind. So tell me about mind wandering. How frequently do we do this? Do we even know that we do this? Yes, we all do it and we do it all the time. In fact, the numbers from various research studies suggest between about 25 to 50 percent of our waking moments, our attention is not on the task at hand. And so, you know, let's say, Prabhu, you and I have this conversation for, I don't know, 20 minutes, 10 of those minutes, one of us may be gone, meaning we're sitting here, we can see each other, we're talking to each other, but our attention is not actually in the moment. And the prevalence of mind wandering, unfortunately, gets even higher under high stress circumstances. So when we would want access to our attention most immediately, and we need to lean on it to perform well, it's less likely to be there. And so you might say, well, where the heck does it go, right? And this is where this notion of mind wandering dovetails with another really strong capacity the mind has, which is mental time travel. So when I say our attention is not here, what I mean is it's not in the moment on the task at hand, but it's actually fast forwarded into some future moment, or it's backtracked to something that's happened in the past. And this can be very problematic for our ability to obviously perform the task, but also how we feel. So you're you're telling me that 50% of this conversation I won't remember or is a throwaway. What if I were to say that while I'm doing that, I'm thinking about how to take this conversation to the next segment or how, what is the next question I can ask or how do I process this information? Would that be part of the 50% that is cast away or would that be productive use of time? Well, I think that, you know, just to be clear, mind wandering is not an unproductive use of your time. It just has consequences. So if we describe mind wandering as having these off-task moments, in the microseconds that you're using to think about the next question you might ask or where you might direct the conversation, it's absolutely the case that you are not fully able to comprehend every word I'm saying or every nuance of what I'm saying. You're diverted to another thing. Now that we would call task-related mind wandering. And the compromise that people experience when they mind wander is that they have less access to the perceptual information coming in. For example, somebody says something to us and we're like, what? What did you say? But the other thing that it does is that we're more likely to make mistakes. So if I say some very profound thing, Prabhu, and you're on to thinking about the next direction you want to move the conversation, you might miss it. What happens to attention when one is experiencing trauma or stress? I know you work with the military and uh, combat veterans. What have you learned from them? So this is actually a dear friend now. He was a Marine captain and he had pretty much had enough. He had a lot of stress and strain. So while he was on that beautiful, serene bridge, his mind was not there, right? His body was driving the car, but his mind was back, pulled back to those moments in Iraq. And it caused him so much distress at that time that he actually considered committing suicide, which is an awful, awful consequence of the stress and strain that stays with the person. Thankfully, he didn't. And from that, my lab wanted to do a study to see if we could offer active duty service members that are getting ready to be deployed back to a war zone because we were still in the thick of things back in the mid 2000s. If we could offer mindfulness training that might help keep attention steady and stable and improve mood in people that are under high degrees of stress. So that's how I came to know him. And thankfully, he became a quite a champion and started practicing himself. I would think normally that when I'm under stress, that I'm really focused on the task and I'm attending to it. And my mind wandering happens when and I'm relaxed, I'm not under stress. But your research shows that there are situations under stress when we lose our 
attention. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, I would say you're correct. And it's also the case that the research shows the opposite. And that depends on how we define stress. So stress is not a singular thing. There's a continuum of what we might call stress. And I would say the broader category is the level of confidence and security we have in our own mind that we can meet the demands of the current moment. So when there's a mismatch, that the demands far exceed my capacity to meet them, we start experiencing stress. And so that can be a very small mismatch or that could be a very large mismatch. I always think about this with students, and you can appreciate this too, that if they have an assignment due at the end of the semester, they're not worried about it right now. That's right. Right. But as the level of stress increases, as the mismatch between my capacity and the demands become more not aligned, we start experiencing more and more stress. And there is a sweet spot and with that, performance tends to increase. We call that eustress, positive stress. But then if you continue to experience stress, you will start now declining in your performance. And you make this very important point that in some cases, that kind of loss in performance may not be so critical. But if you're a firefighter or if you're a soldier waging war or a fighter pilot or a surgeon, these things could have, you know, performance deterioration from stress can be fatal. That's right. Now, with stress, we have more mind wanderers. So that's where the problems come in. But I would say it's not just people in these high stress, high demand circumstances where attention matters. I mean, we were talking about students a moment ago. Students' attention matters. You know, as professors, we know that it affects learning and it affects relationships too. Attention is this sort of what we call domain general capacity. We use it for complex cognitive functions, but we also use it to direct our interest, meaning our attention to other people. So one may think that being distracted doesn't matter much if you're just talking to another person, but they feel it. We've all been on the receiving end of a distracted person in our presence. So I would say that it's important for all of us. And it is the lifeblood of the quality of our experience in life. And one way to achieve this quality is mindfulness. So what is mindfulness and how is it related to managing our attention? Mindfulness is a big topic in my lab. It wasn't always. I was at the front end of something called cognitive neuroscience. And my expertise was in attention. That was my formal training. But after doing this for many years, I realized that this extremely powerful brain system is quite vulnerable. It can, as we've already talked about, be hijacked away. And what I was looking for was solutions. So how is it that we could train the mind so it's not hijacked away? And so this notion of being in the present moment became very important for all of that. That's where mindfulness training entered my lab's work as a brain training tool to improve attention. And mindfulness, the academic definition is paying attention to our present moment experience without judgment or reactivity around it. And that present centeredness is so key so that we're not having a story about our experience. We're actually experiencing it directly. When I think about mindfulness, I think you have to sit quietly in a corner. But in some of the interventions that folks have tried in your lab, you could walk and still practice mindfulness. I find that interesting. To me, it's much easier to walk than to sit still somewhere, I think. A lot of us with very active minds would say that. It's like, why would you choose to do that, right? Why would you want to sit in a quiet room and pay attention to the most boring thing you can think of, your own breath? That is probably the core exercise we offer in all of our training programs. A quietly pay attention to the sensations of breathing. When your mind wanders, return it. So that would be the Cadillac intervention. Yeah, that's a foundational practice. And we're doing that over and over again in these in these what we call stillness practices to cultivate this quality of being able to direct and notice no matter what you're doing. There's so many places where you can get mindfulness training. You can download an app for mindfulness training, but they'll often have a whole suite of practices. Some are going to be what we call stillness practices where there is no other activity you should be doing. And I'd call those the most difficult in some ways. 
Because there's nowhere else to put your attention except for this very boring thing. But it provides such a perfect opportunity to practice noticing the mind wandering. Some have to do with doing that same thing while you're walking. But the quality of attention is still the same. Pay attention to the sensations of your foot touching the ground or the coolness of air on your skin as you walk, you know, whatever it is. You practice mindfulness. Can you tell us how your practices, your habits, how life has changed after you become disciplined in your mindfulness practice? Obviously, I can tell you from my own life, the whole reason that mindfulness even occurred to me to enter my research program is because essentially my own levels of stress and anxiety, feeling like I was as a young parent with small children trying to run a lab, et cetera, I was feeling like I was missing the entirety of my life. It was just gone through worry or unproductive rumination. And so it, it entered my own life just as a modality to show up more for my children and for my family. And it definitely changed the quality of my attention and relationships. The way it shows up in one's life is very interesting because it can actually be the simple thing of you can direct your attention better, right? But the other piece is this ease and the ability to pivot to what's needed. Because you can imagine in all our lives, if you're on the last problem, when the new problem is in front of you, that's not going to serve anybody. And so this pivoting capacity that I'm just able to fully be here without the residue of the last problem that I was attempting to solve. And the third thing I would say is this notion of dropping the story so that when somebody comes to you with a problem and you're charged with solving it, they're going to have a way of framing the problem to you. And you may believe that as the only version of reality. And if you get sucked in as a leader to that particular orientation, that person may be wrong and you may be wrong. So this notion of actively being able to drop the story is very, very powerful in terms of high-level decision-making. But you can imagine it's so important for all of us in everything we do. Um, if you have a difficult interaction with somebody and you feel like they've got a problem with you, you may be totally wrong. It has nothing to do with you at all, right? So being able to see and take that kind of broadening of perspective approach is very helpful. Oh, uh, these are very important implications, particularly the the second one, I practice that when I have back-to-back -back meetings, especially I'm dealing with challenging situations like personnel matters. I try to take at least three minutes or so. Even if I'm late for the next meeting, I just give myself a few minutes to completely you know, take some deep breaths unbeknownst to me. I've been practicing some aspect of mindfulness, maybe. Absolutely. And I think that anybody that interacts with you is receiving the benefits of that. You are more fully there for them and for the problem at hand. So Amishi, we hear quite a bit about reframing, but I've never heard much about deframing. Could you explain what that could be? Yes, absolutely. It's a very powerful idea because essentially it means that whatever the mental model is that you're holding to understand a situation, for example, to first of all, notice that that is just a mental model. Those are thoughts that have been bound together that you're using to impose your understanding of the situation. Deframing is essentially dissolving that mental model. And this is where it actually can have such strong life and death consequences. So this was conveyed to me by a military colleague, General Walter Pyatt. And this was, again, during the height of our conflict with Iraq and Afghanistan and all the 9-11 things that happened with the military. But anyway, so they were told that there's a group of people on this mountaintop and they are a Taliban group and they need to be removed in some sense. And he had full authority to essentially bomb that particular area. Thankfully, he is a very mindful person and a mindful leader. What he did is he sent his scouts up. So everybody was walking up the mountain, including the general himself. And as they approached, one of the scouts said, yes, sir, all visuals are confirmed that there's men in their early 20s 
you know, they're sitting outside, there's two of them, they're walking, it looks like they're guarding an area of a home. So on the story that this is this encampment, they started filling in the data, like all the data matched what they were looking for. And so essentially he's getting pressure, like, okay, just bomb them. We've already got the confirmation. And he said, no, no, just just take a closer look, look what, what you see. And then the soldier who was the scout said something very interesting. He said, sir, they have no weapons. And that would have been a big clue if they were actually Taliban. They wouldn't be just mulling around. They would actually be holding weapons. And he actually said, yeah, there's no weapons. I'm just going to tackle these guys, you know, not fire any shots. And he did. And what ended up happening is that from the kind of dwelling behind them, a large group of people kind of came out led by this woman who was obviously the leader of this family that was there. And it ended up that it was not a Taliban encampment. They were not warriors. This was a Bedouin tribe that had been coming there for years. So this is kind of a long story. But the point is, if he did not deframe for even a moment to think, I have this view, but what am I not seeing here? It would have been very hard for them to make a different choice. And thankfully, it ended up that no action was taken and they were allowed to peacefully continue what they were doing. So this is an extreme case, but deframing in our own lives has the same sort of potency where we want to take a step back, remind ourselves, thoughts are not facts. And whatever it is that I'm thinking is actually constraining the next steps of my thinking and what I pay attention to. You're saying that in high-stress situations, it's imperative to pay attention and be mindful. That makes perfect sense to me. So, Amishi, we're living amid a pandemic. What advice do you have for us to manage stress and structure our lives during these uncertain times? So, it was very strange to me that I spent so much of my career looking at these high-stress, high-demand groups where the level of various qualities of their life are so bound up in the kind of work that they do. And the qualities are really what we call VUCA. So volatile, V, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And we were very familiar with what VUCA does to service members, first responders, and even students and medical and nursing professionals. But I had no idea that now, you know, for the last year, we would all be living in these VUCA circumstances. And I'm afraid what we're seeing is exactly what we've been seeing in our participants. If we have to endure these long periods of time with this type of challenge, our attention will become compromised. And I think we're all feeling it, this kind of a cognitive fog where it doesn't feel like we're quite as sharp or quite as present. There's a bit of exhaustion in the way that we are feeling every day. And the good news in all of this is that the same solutions we've learned about through our work with these high intensity professionals, we can all benefit from. So we can start every day by doing a short mindfulness practice, about 12 minutes a day of doing something like paying attention to the sensations of breathing, when the mind wanders, return it. And that can help us really regain the capacities that are lost through the VUCA circumstances. So I do encourage anybody, no matter where they are, they've never practiced, they've never even heard of mindfulness, to give this a try. Because a lot of the other things that are being offered to us, you know, look on the bright side or see the positive of these circumstances, those are not always very useful. There's a lot of difficulty in trying to see things as positive when they're quite challenging and problematic. So Mishi, I hear you're working on a book and tell us about it. Very excited about the book. The title is Peak Mind and the intention of this book, it'll be out in October, is to really share what we know about the world of attention. So it's understanding the nature of how attention works and then solutions we can implement immediately and with ease and accessibility to actually grab a better hold of our own mind and our own attention. So I'm, I'm very excited about that and I hope everybody will check it out. I'm going to practice mindfulness, but I have to say I'm <laughs> going to try the walking mindfulness exercise first before I get into the room and practice the more disciplined. Uh, I think you already practice. <laughs> those three minutes that you're doing between meetings. Thank you so much. That's <laughs> terrific. I am a big fan and continue to do the great work you're doing. 
Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill. And hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Hamishi Ja. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.